It's no secret that what we eat and how we produce the food we eat is a major driver of climate change. Agriculture represents nearly a third of global carbon emissions, but not all foods impact the environment in the same ways. Nearly half of those agricultural emissions come from meat alone. Go to any carbon footprint calculator, and likely the top recommendation you'll get to reduce your impact on climate change is to stop eating meat and animal products. But telling people we should all turn into vegans isn't just hard. How could we ever ask Texans to give up brisket or fajitas? It also isn't a realistic ask for people with something as personal and meaningful as food, and therefore isn't a realistic solution to imagine billions of new vegans materializing overnight. The foods we eat represent cultural and heritage ties that shape who we are and how we understand our place in the world. This episode is the start of a series of pieces we'll be bringing you in the coming months focused on our food, and meat specifically. Not only the impacts of meat on the environment, but different ways animals can have positive impacts on our climate when raised in sustainable ways. Ways we can think about reducing our reliance on meat without giving it up, and understanding the history of meat production in the U.S. to understand how we became a country where we consume 57 pounds of beef, over 50 pounds of pork, and nearly 100 pounds of chicken a year per person. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies program and the program manager of the Delubial Houston Initiative. And you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Before we jump into our conversation, I want to remind listeners that KPFT Houston is currently in our February Fun Drive. As public radio, KPFT Houston can only exist with your support. Over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and want to support our work, please call 713-526-KPFT and pledge a donation. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer to support our work. In the coming weeks, Gulf Streams will feature conversations with experts on plastic waste, carbon capture and storage, meat production, and the economics of climate change. If you want to become a station sustainer, ask about our memory bricks, permanent inscribed tributes to your generosity here at the studio. And during our entire pledge drive, every new sustainer pledge at any amount will automatically result in an additional donation of $50 thanks to a generous matching gift pledge. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn about all the unique Pledge Drive offerings going on this month. We're delighted to bring you important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond on Gulf Streams, and can only do so with your support. So please, call 713-526-KPFT, make a one-time or sustainer donation, mention Gulf Streams, and help keep ad-free public radio on the air here in Houston. To start off our conversation on meat production, we're turning to indigenous experts Watse Gayal, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Rice University, and Lucille Contreras, CEO of the Texas Tribal Buffalo Project. Both are indigenous and both research and speak about the importance of animal foods to the culture and health of native peoples around the world. 
Their work demonstrates ways of raising and consuming meat that challenges much of typical industrial agriculture and demonstrates the deep cultural and spiritual role that animals play in society, both offering new models of raising meat for consumption and at the same time demonstrating how complex meat as an issue is and not something that most people can easily turn their back on without sacrificing core parts of their identity. What's like Ayal, Lucille Contreras, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having us. Um, so just to start off, can you introduce yourselves to us, maybe starting with Lucille? Hi, my name is Lucille R. Contreras. I'm a CEO and founder of Texas Tribal Buffalo Project. I'm also a lineal descendant of Texas indigenous people, the Lipan Apache. I caretake for Buffalo, and I, I currently live in Gonzales County, and I raise 20 head of Buffalo currently. Right. Great. That's amazing. <laughs> Hello, uh, my name is Huatzidja, uh, and I'm assistant professor of anthropology in the Department of Anthropology at Rice University. And I um, originally was born raised in the, in the Tibetan nomadic community, uh, where we... Um, have yaks and sheep and horse and goats. So uh, yeah, it's uh, such a wonderful opportunity and it's such an honor to be in a conversation with uh, you, Lucille and, and Weston about these two amazing animals in, in two different con continents. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely, I'm, I'm really excited as we're, we're gonna be doing a series of pieces thinking around um, animal relationships, especially around meat production and, you know, other ways of thinking about industrial agriculture, other ways of thinking of connecting to to animals um, and and understanding their relationship with them. And I think Lucille, your work is is so critical in this space, and it opens us up to to new ways of, of really understanding, you know, what our relationships to animals are, and and the various ways that they influence and impact our lives. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can just talk us a little bit, talk us through a little bit what Texas Tribal Buffalo Project is and the work you're doing, and and why it's so significant. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Texas Tribal Buffalo Project, our mission and our goals are to reconnect Texas indigenous people to each other by rebuilding our kinship as relatives to each other, uh, as extended family, just as in the past, our people for generations live this way, but especially our relationship to the buffalo as a relative rekindling that relationship. We feel that it was the loss of Buffalo on our homelands that created the multitude of disparities that our people today experience. So our work is in rebuilding the harmonious relationship as much as possible in today's age, in today's world, but still holding to our traditions and our culture of our indigenous people, not only the Lipan Apache, but several other tribes in Texas, like the Kauitecano, the Karankua, the Cariso, the Tapilam, uh, just to name a few. And so we remember that the buffalo is our relative. So if we we think of ourselves as buffalo caretakers. 
we're not in the livestock ranching business. We're in the buffalo caretaking business. Mm. And so when you, you view it in that way, our goal is to rebuild the relationship with the soil, the grass, all the life around us, to honor and respect all of the life around us. Even as we depend on the buffalo for everything, just as our ancestors once did for home, for shelter, for art, for medicine, for utensils, for everything in life. Today, the buffalo or iyane, as we say in Lipan Apache, is also everything for us. And if we continue to care and protect the buffalo, we in turn also receive blessings and are protected by the buffalo and this entire way of life. We're so blessed that we've had an amazing amount of support. We're coming up on our third year of being here in Texas. And in that short amount of time, we've re reconnected with so many of our Texas indigenous relatives who were really hungry <clears throat> and needing that reconnection of culture uh, 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 for strength. And, and uh, this, this involves mental, physical, and, and health um, benefits. What I love as you're talking through that is, is this, you know, the buffalo are, you know, yes, your relative, but also so but clearly is the center of, of so many things you're thinking about in your life, right? Culture and connection, this society of harmonious that you use, this harmonious life balance, um, which I think, you know, is certainly ecological in the way that you're thinking about soil and connection, but also all of these other, you know, that it's that this kind of environmental and animal connection is crucial to the whole way of living and 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 it impacts every else other aspect of life that you're thinking about and i think that's such a you know a, a different frame from you know how most americans experience you know certainly animals certainly their food but it's you know it, it's a real kind of refocusing on how do we connect and think through and with um that this is holistic and not simply yeah that's what i'm going to eat for dinner tonight um yeah, I don't know if you, I, I've heard you talk about this. So I'm going to let you say more, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I was asked one time a question. If, if you consider the buffalo your relative, why do you eat the buffalo? Yep. <laughs> well, you are, you are what you eat. And um, we, we love the buffalo. We cherish the buffalo, the Iyane. We regard the buffalo so highly, and the buffalo is a keystone species. Mm. When the buffalo was massively devastated from these lands, it did cause a climate impact that we today uh, are suffering with. The, the climate impact can be directly connected to the extermination of keystone species, such as the buffalo. As the buffalo walk on the earth, the hooves uh, aerate the soil. Mm -hmm. As they fertilize the ground, uh, they revive the seed bank that has been holding native grasses 
for generations. So just as native grasses are regrowing, so are native people. So are our buffalo populations. We realize that the buffalo provide our nutrients that our body had been lacking for generations. Mm. Our DNA is our soil bank as Texas indigenous people. So much like when I say uh, the seed bank, I'm talking about for folks who may not be familiar with that term, the seed bank is all across the soil, all over the globe. As industrialization came with invasion of colonizers into our lands and our, our, our soils were devastated and uh, replaced with foreign grasses that were not adapted. And then hence you had industrial agriculture and with the removal of the buffalo on the plains, the dust bowls that occurred on the land here in, in the United States, all of the industrial agriculture that came after the dust bowl, bowl continued to deplete the soil. Mm. However, there are seeds still in the soil that are layers deep that can be revived and can be nutured and will can once again uh, um, bloom and flourish and revive in the soil. This is documented. This is a scientific fact. Well, you use that analogy also in Texas indigenous communities mm. who for generations have had our traditions, our language, and our food removed from our lives, removed from our bodies. But our DNA is our seed bank. Mm. And so as we regain our cultural practices, and as we regain our traditional ecological knowledge and skills, tinks, as we regain these, we also have a pathway through the buffalo for health in our bodies. Because mm. of the loss of this food, this traditional sacred food, the buffalo meat and other foods, our people for generation have suffered diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, strokes, heart disease, etc., but also mental disparities in addition. But as we put this food back into our bodies and revive our own seed banks, as people, we become healthier. If we become healthier, we can continue to live and grow in a healthy way and thereby all of the people, all of the, uh, it, it overflows to everybody, to each and every one of us. As you Weston and you Waste are my brothers. 
we are relatives. We are two-leggeds here on this earth traveling this same path. And for whatever reason, we've been connected. Uh, the universe has put us uh, on this path together. And I'm really happy to be on this journey. And so that that's, yeah. The same feelings here, Lucille. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I want to come back to, to this health piece in a minute, but first I want to go over to Watse and, and hear a little bit about, you know, I think Americans have, you know, some ideas about uh, the buffalo, certainly the bison, you know, we're, we're connected in different ways. How much of that history we actually know, how, how great our understanding is we can talk about. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, Americans know very little about yaks yeah. um and and arguably tibet in general yeah. would you walk us through a little bit uh the role of the yak in in you know in your research and in your own history and and why you're looking at it and and you know the tibetan relationship to yaks and maybe we'll th we'll hear some things that resonate mm -hmm. thank you so much it was it's such a again honor and wonderful opportunity to be in conversation with you two about this and uh so I was born and raised in the Tibetan nomadic community, and uh, when mothers give birth to their babies, um, in, in Tibetan nomadic communities, moms are often busy early in the morning. They have to tend to the yak babies and also uh, milking. And um, so when you're a little baby, um, when you have your mom's milk, you drink your mom's milk. And, uh, and then when you don't, you drink yak's milk. So in that, in many ways today, uh, of course, I have this deep sense of gratitude towards my mom and uh, she's, she was Most of us do or should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but in the same way that if you think about it, you know, that really the, the, all the amazing beings that give you the nutrition or give you life other than the mother, than the mother like yuck. So in that sense, it's really uh, central to the entire being of every single person who are born and raised in, uh, in, the, in the Tibetan uh, nomadic world. And um, it, the Tibetan word for yak is um, nor, or norna, uh, and nor means treasure. Mm -hmm. And so in the, in the, it also, the language reflects the importance of the yaks as well. And, and the today, um, yaks are still a very important part of people's lives. And not only that, they enter into, figure into uh, stories, origin stories, mm. um, and uh, uh, songs and um, and proverbs, sayings. Uh, so it's 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 as Lucio earlier was saying, it's not just an animal, but it's more has entered into dif different spheres of people's lives. So it's in it's in it's in the food, it's in the customs, it's in the stories. It's in, in their way of perceiving the world. So in that sense, mm. it's a really important part of um, part of society. Yeah. And I think this is really fascinating in that, you know, it's we, we don't tend to have the same kind of connections with most of our, you know, animal food sources in the U.S. And, and when we think of the way that we connect to animals, and I, I want to go back a little bit to the to the health point that Lucille was making, you know, when we think of industrial agriculture, um, which we're going to continue to talk about uh, both the history of how we got to where we are, but also some of the implications of industrial agriculture, you know, one piece of this is that health component. Um, and certainly bison are, you know, a, a 
vastly important food source. Um, but some of that is also directly tied to, and I know you, you've talked about this before, Lucille, but bison can't be domesticated. Um, and, and so, I mean that, you know, that the fact that bison have in just entirely different kind of system of how they exist and, uh, aren't being shoved into little cages and, you know, and being redesigned for maximum kind of, you know, I'm thinking of chickens here in particular, where we've rebred chickens to just be like 60% breast meat. And it's really kind of terrifying over the last 70 years we've done to chickens bodies. Um, I, I imagine the same is true of yaks, right? That mm -hmm. these are heritage food sources that provide entirely different nutritional systems because they haven't been completely refabricated in these ways that we've done, um, to maximize, you know, the, the, the juiciest part of the, the chicken breast or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to say more about that Lucille in, in terms of health and in terms of, you know, how we actually yeah, get meat from bison, <laughs> but yes. Well, one thing that we're working on here at Texas tribal Buffalo project is, um, a, a more, um, sensitive way mm. of working with the buffalo so that um when we when we are out with the buffalo um say there's times that we do um for example part of our caretaking is parasitology so as the buffalo are back on their homeland their homeland has been invaded by uh, other livestock, other animals that are not native to this land. That just as uh, we as two-leggeds had um, been exposed to smallpox and other diseases that were brought over by Europe, uh, buffalo and deer and other native animals also experience um diseases brought over by animals that were mm. brought from Europe. So uh, buffalo are very sensitive. They, you cannot have buffalo and goats on the same piece of property because goats have a parasite that will kill buffalo, mm. but it will not kill cows. It will not kill cattle. So the, the, the way that we caretake for buffalo has to also involve examining um, what is around the buffalo so that they're protected from the inside as mm -hmm. well as the outside. And so uh, another big difference that we're doing here in our caretaking of buffalo is that when we do harvest buffalo, we, we actually call it a ceremonial honoring of the buffalo. Mm. And in that regard, we we have offerings that we put to the buffalo to give thanks for the buffalo's life. We sing songs to the buffalo. We have our drums and our traditional um, chants that we honor the buffalo with before we humbly ask the buffalo for its life, the iyane. And then afterwards, we continue the honoring of the buffalo. So when we ingest this 
beautiful relative, we're also, we believe, ingesting and taking in all of those prayers mm. that we gave and offered to the buffalo, which in exchange offered back to us. And this is something that we do for our communities. That is not a uh, financial gain for us. Mm. It is a, a bountiful blessing that we share with our communities. On the other side of that, the side that helps us keep our lights on, that helps us pay our property taxes, etc., is that we are working towards having our own processing facility where we will do a field harvest meaning we don't chase the buffalo, we don't traumatize the buffalo, we don't create stress in the buffalo by chasing it into a corral, into mm. a pen, loading it onto a truck, driving it hours where it's scared and, and having all of these hormonal changes as you're taking it to a different location. And then they literally shoot it in the head when they slaughter it, and in the whole time, that is going into the meat of the animal. So what we are doing and working with the USDA is to develop a way where we do this voluntary inspection of the field harvest. So working with the USDA inspector, we still get the USDA certified label onto the buffalo meat, mm. but it's not traumatized. It's honored, it's respected. And and then um, the processing, everything happens all in one location. So I feel that is something that sets us apart from the buffalo ranchers in Texas mm. and across the country, because um, we, we're not um, cowboys hooping and hollering, chasing the buffalo. We're working together with the buffalo mm -hmm. for the benefit of, of the buffalo and ourselves. And so uh, it's sort of a business model, but at the same time, um, a way to honor our ancestors and honor the buffaloes all, all the way around. Always thinking in that circular way, holistically. And, and that's something that I hope that we can share with other people and teach other people so that we can increase the Buffalo uh, caretakers in Texas and, and increase their land uh, access. Um, we, a dream would be to restore the Buffalo corridor that at one time went from North to South. Mm. Who knows, maybe um, in the future generations that may, that may happen. Can you say really quick, just what, what do you mean by that corridor for those who, don't, who aren't familiar? the buffalo or bison and and a lot of people ask me why i say buffalo rather than bison we've been using this a little uh, interchangeably yeah <laughs> sure buffalo is a word that um genetically buffalo uh, are from africa mm. when the um europeans were here they identified r e a n e or bison as buffalo. Mm. And then as they proceeded to massacre the buffalo as a way to exterminate native people, 
uh, the word became a way as native people using it for our own sovereignty. It was once a way to exterminate and kill us. Now we use it to identify our relatives because we all survived in the face of, of um, oppression and colonization. And so I use the word buffalo and bison and iane uh, interchangeably. So um, let's see, back to your question. The corridor. <laughs> The Buffalo, the Buffalo Corridor. Corridor. At one point, the Buffalo uh, freely roamed from Canada all the way into Mexico. There were millions of Buffalo. It was said that we could feel the land shaking like an earthquake when the Buffalo were passing through mm. because there were so many Buffalo across the land, millions a huge swath up and down the land. And that is what we call the Buffalo Corridor. Well, I'd say it looked like you wanted to jump in at one point. So if you had something I went, went on. Uh, uh, sure, I, I, I was really enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was thinking of this holistic perspective on mm -hmm. the relationship between Buffalo or the people and the, uh, yaks and people in the, um, in the land. And um, um, so in the past six, seven years, um, I you know, had the opportunity to work with or work for um, some leading um, Tibetan indigenous um, uh, environmental leaders. And uh, one of them, his name is Gomchopasa. And he started this um, in, in the eastern part of Tibet and in, in a place called Nzorge. And then part of the land is becoming desert and uh, so that um, has become a problem, and there are many causes to that. And and um, uh, so in 2010, he, in collaboration with uh, village leaders and uh, community members, um, he heard this from a female Tibetan herder, and she said, "We actually need to uh, reincorporate the yaks into the conservation process." Mm. And so the um, started planting local grass seeds into the areas that have become a desert. And um, so following this advice from this um, um, female, um, uh, the Tibetan herder, and uh, and then they um, started planting local grass seeds and then they bring the yaks and the yak trample the grass seeds into the soil, into the soil that's partly become a desert. And then you have yak down there remixed with the seeds. And one important point here is also the yak is also a very hairy animal, and then that carries a lot of uh, seeds. Uh, so meaning that you know the the seeds that coming coming from the uh, that are, are kind of stuck in the in the the yak hair, and mm -hmm. also and the seeds that you find in the yak dung, all of that uh, commingle and remix with the seeds that they plant in the grass, uh, in in the soil. And after a year. And after two years, the results have been really remarkable. So it has become one of the most innovative uh, uh, locally led uh, land conservation projects on the Tibetan plateau. So this is a really kind of a live example of what Lucio was saying earlier that um, the you know American buffalo and Tibetan yaks, mm -hmm. they are part of the ecosystem. They're keystone species. And in that, in that sense, you have to see the 
interconnectedness, the interdependence. So it's not it's a one uh, this kind of relationship between the humans and animals. It's more of and humans, animals, plants. And if you look at the landscape, people tend to say this is a natural landscape and this is nature. And the, uh, but in if you think about the longer history, it's it's, it's all co-created, co-created mm -hmm. by humans, by the animals, by the other beings, and then that is the landscape you're seeing. If you're seeing rivers, you're seeing mountains, you're seeing grassland, that is a co-created landscape. But what we see today, the problem we have today is a disrupted version of that. And so I think what Lucio and what uh, many of um, the indigenous community leaders uh, in Tibet, they're trying to work is really to restore that coexistence mm -hmm. and this interconnected and holistic um, way of living that has been disrupted, right? So, so in that sense, I, uh, I I find your work very inspiring, Lucio, and I also find, you know, I find a lot of similarities and uh, and uh, oftentimes a lot of this work, you we may not see the results next year. We may not even see the results next 10 years, but this is for a, uh, uh, for 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 many generations, right? So you have a you have a you have a larger goal here. So in that sense, it's um, in today's this kind of capitalist system where you uh, the calculation of revenue and 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 uh, and and then expenses, all that you know, it's also that model doesn't quite work here. So in this sense, it's this is for many generations, and then and and uh, so th that's also a similarity that I see uh, between the division that. Lucio is putting forward and a lot of the vision that a lot of the indigenous Tibetan community leaders have. Yeah. And also now as a as a researcher and looking at this more kind of in a transnational context, a lot of the similar policies affected um, mm. you know the lives of buffaloes and the and the yaks. And earlier on that, you know, barbed wire fencing was implemented mm. in, 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 in America. And later after a century it was implemented in the 1990s in Tibet. And so that is by kind of dividing the communal land into this privatized um, um, or individual households or a, a class of households. And um, and in, at the time, there was um, the, the policy, this uh, kind of range and fencing policy was implemented in the name of preserving or protecting the land mm. based on the idea that um, if you have this kind of communal use of the land, that would lead to some a notion of tra the tragedy of commons. That people are going to think. For those who aren't familiar, what, what is the tragedy of the commons? <laughs> yeah, the tragedy of commons is that once you have a common property, such, such as uh, fish in the sea or mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Tibetan, the community used land, the, the, the idea is um, that um, si since people are not going to think it's it belongs to nobody, uh, one individual person, so uh, they're going to overexploit that. Mm. Uh, so they don't; they're not going to better take care of that. So that was the assumption. It also uh, it's it's a debunked notion, a debunked idea, and uh, so. But that it's was a very old idea. Very old idea. Yeah, yes, hundreds of years ago. Yes, yes, but it it, yeah. it continues in our imaginary. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So that really uh, was central to the range and fencing policy in Tibet, and um, and today that. It's, uh, it's, uh, um, ecologists, scientists, they have done some research where uh, the, the, the households in Tibetan nomadic areas that they try to use the land communally. Mm. Uh, and mm. even like 60, 70 households together put their land together and use and use that land communally and have yaks and sheep and horse and, um, 
things like uh, animals like that. And then um, research have discovered that there's more biodiversity in the land. Then in compared to the areas where the land has been privatized to individual households. So, um, so there is that, you know, from that perspective, there is really um, the animals play an important ecological role mm-hmm. in here. And uh, um, so, um, so that's a kind of the, the, so one part of the larger story. Yes. Well, and something that I want to, you know, comment on is we're, we're rapidly running out of time here. But, you know, Lucille, I think one of the things I find really exciting about your work is that you are demonstrating business models that are outside of, you know, the typical industrial agricultural process that you're really thinking about. What are ways that we can reconnect people with heritage food ways that we can preserve this? Um, and so I just want to give you a little a chance to talk, you know, as you mentioned, the USD or a earlier, but about, you know, some of that work on the very practical side of what it takes to actually reconnect people to these food ways and to run that business um, so that I can also just segue right into, you know, folks want to get involved or support your work, how they might be able to do so. The USDA Beginning Farmer and Rancher Loan was our pathway back home to acquire land. I had been away from Texas for almost 30 years, but uh, during that time, I was so homesick for the land, for the the land here uh, where my ancestors walked. I just was aching for it. So during the pandemic, I decided to jump through that pandemic portal and apply for the USDA beginning farmer and rancher loan, which is absolutely an underutilized program mm. that I highly encourage anybody who is interested in acquiring land uh, for agriculture purposes to apply. If it would not have been for that program, I would not have been able to successfully move back home and acquire 77 acres in my own traditional homeland. Um, Here in Texas, the state is not going to give back land to Texas indigenous communities that was Mm. lost generations ago. However, the pathway to regain our own traditional homeland can be through the beginning farmer and rancher loan. And uh, um, we offer a class, it's called the Business of Indian Agriculture. Uh, This year, we're going to be offering it in Houston, Texas, and it will be in April. And I'll be sure to give you the details when we finalize all of that. And um, yeah, it's it's really important that we continue as indigenous people to try our best to regain everything that was lost. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a different purpose and mission. For me, it's to help our people get back to our homeland and become healthier. Exactly as Watsi said, not for my lifetime, but the return of investment is long term and long range. I hope to see y'all over here at our ranch sometime soon. And our website, we try our best to keep it up to date. It's texastribalbuffaloproject.org. And currently we have a large survey 
that we're doing to gather data across the state of Texas for Texas indigenous communities. This is, survey is very unique in that we are gathering data that will hopefully affect the health of Texas indigenous communities and the well-being. It's a demographic data and um, and we really uh, would love and encourage folks to help us with that survey as well, which is on our website. That's terrific. Thank you so much, Lucille. Well, I'd say we're, we're wrapping up, but I don't know if you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share quickly before uh, we uh, run out of time. Thank you. Just a few parting words. It's such, again, a, a tremendous honor to be in a conversation with you, Lucille and Weston. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, really what is what I find so inspiring in your work, Lucio, and the works of Tibetan community leaders is that you, um, there is of course this kind of shared sense of loss, but at the same time, you all have, in spite of all the external conditions, external struggles, but we still move forward. And, 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 and really what I see the common quality in all of you is it's not that we're not going to have problems and all the there are no um, policy restrictions or uh, all kinds of external uh, pressures and problems. But in spite of them, we decided to move forward. And so mm. I find that really inspiring. And uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you both thank for you. this wonderful conversation. It's been it's been great to chat with you both and to hear about these different projects. And I, I'm just so grateful for your time and for the work you do. Thank, thank you. you. And just like the buffalo, we have fortitude and perseverance and hope and encouragement. And I'm so grateful for having this conversation and being involved with y'all today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go now to a special story on Mardi Gras. Um, I spoke with some local advocates in the New Orleans area who are doing really interesting work rethinking and reimagining what Mardi Gras and festivities in general can look like in terms of waste reduction and the reducing of pollutants that we're putting out into the world, and especially along the Gulf Coast, thinking about carnival, thinking about how we can make our, our festivities and revelries a little bit greener, I think is always a great thing. So I'm really excited to now bring you a conversation with Hannah Pittman of Grounds Crew in New Orleans. So just to start us off, can you uh, tell us who you are and what you do at Grounds Crew and, and a little about where Grounds Crew came from and how you guys got started? Yeah, hi, I'm Hannah uh, Pittman and I am one of three employees at our small nonprofit. It was started by Brett Davis um, in 2018 as just a Mardi Gras recycling initiative and it has grown to become um, an initiative that helps make not just Mardi Gras, but all of the events in the city of New Orleans more sustainable as much as we can with three people. <laughs> um, so now we do Mardi Gras recycling in addition to um, festival support, like we rent recycling bins to Jazz Fest and many of the other festivals wow. throughout the city. And our biggest initiative is probably our sustainable throw catalog. 
-hmm. where we sell, I think to date, we've sold over 380,000 Mardi Gras throws that are biodegradable, sustainable, or consumable products. Oh, yeah. I mean, so that's how I first kind of heard about you as the sustainable throws. Um, and so, I mean, Mardi Gras, of course, around the whole Gulf Coast, huge thing, you know, we're, we're coming right up into carnival season now, we're coming up on Mardi Gras day pretty soon. Uh, and so I'm just wondering, you know, what does a more sustainable Mardi Gras look like, you know, for, for everyone around <laughs> New Orleans, but also outside of New Orleans, you know, what are the, some of the things that you're thinking about? Certainly, I heard you say recycling, but beyond that, how are we thinking about sustainability in Mardi Gras. We really want people to know that there is a recycling initiative at Mardi Gras this year. I think that's really important to us because that's really how this whole organization started was to do um, recycling at Mardi Gras because it's sort of like you, um, you watch this dad tell his kid to throw his trash on the ground and you can't help but think is that kid ever going to unlearn that message that he learned from his dad? So we're putting out trash cans and recycling bins and bead recycling bins, glass, aluminum, you name it. And, and it's really a, a message to our parading public, our local citizens, um, that it's not okay to throw trash on the ground, which seems so obvious if you go to other countries or other places in the world. But here in New Orleans, it's a real problem still. You know, so um, we want people to know about our Recycle Dad initiative with the city of New Orleans as much as we can. So, And one of the things that I find really exciting about your work is the way that you're really trying to to get us to think past um, the the carnival of excess or or of waste. And I think you're offering a model for other places as well to think about how carnival can support local economies um, and also you know, have more creative and inventive ways of imagining what this season can look like? Well, the ideal situation is that the products that people are buying to throw into the streets are things that are made locally, mm -hmm. um, supporting a local throw economy. That's something that we talk a lot about is a local throw economy and how important it is to, um, to, circulate that that wealth within the area because we have lots and lots of tourists that come from out of town and then they buy these vastly expensive throw packages which the thing about um, Mardi Gras is that nobody buys a ticket to it it's one of the largest free unsponsored events in the entire world it's like 11 days long and the city pays for most of the cleanup of that the crews pay a very nominal fee to the city to be able to ride in them. And so what happens is we, as a city of New Orleans, end up with this massive waste problem. You know, I mean, we found um, in 2012, there was a study done by the city where they found 93,000 pounds of beads in five blocks of storm drains along St. Charles. And this can't be pumped out. They have to be actually removed. You know, so it's a flooding problem as well as it's a, a financial and problem here in New Orleans, you know, and in addition to that, it's kind of a human health and safety problem. I mean, Mardi Gras beads, it really only started in the 80s. There were glass beads before that. When I was a kid, everybody would scramble to get one string of beads. But mm -hmm. basically every year as the floats get bigger and bigger and the parades get 
you know, more moving lights and flashing things and fog machines, um, then they have to pay for that somehow. And so that's paid for by the import of these plastic beads and trinkets, markup of them, and then resale to the crews that are parading. Um, and the plastic beads are, for the most part, as we know it, e-waste. You know, they're just compressed, nasty kinds of plastic that might have potentially, we don't actually know because there's only one study ever been done on it, but might have things like lead paint in them or flame retardants or, you know, things that are not great for children, which is their major consumer mm -hmm. to be handling and putting in their mouths and things, you know, so it's a human health and safety problem in addition to that. So um, a little about your sustainable throws. What makes a throw sustainable? <laughs> so our throws are, so we have jambalaya girl jambalaya in a little tiny package. Now, nothing in Mardi oh. Gras that's thrown is allowed to be sponsored. So we can't throw Coca-Cola or anything that's name branded, right? Um, so jambalaya girl makes us a, a package that doesn't have her, her logo on it. Mm. And then we put a sticker on it with a little QR code that you mm -hmm. can scan and go to and see who makes this product, right? So we have Jambalaya Girl Jambalaya and New Orleans Roast Coffee. We have Camellia Red Beans. Um, we have soap uh, made by Avani, which is a wonderful lady named Princess making it in her garage, you know? <laughs> um, we have local biodegradable glitter made by Glitter Nymph and by Pixie Dust. Um, and the list goes on, hand scrub, bug spray, sunscreen, you name it. We're, we're trying to do things that people will use and then they'll want to catch it again. You know, it'll, you can't have too many packs of red beans. You come home from Mardi Gras with a ton of red beans or a ton of coffee and that's just more friends that you can cook for, <laughs> right? Absolutely. No, that, that sounds like a great Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the sustainable throw catalog, um, it supports local businesses, but one of the things that's sort of near and dear to my heart about it is that right now, all of the beads being recycled in the city are being recycled by adults with developmental disabilities in a day program. Wow. There are several of them around the city, like ARC and St. Michael's Special School, and we um, replace their work, basically. So we pay those same adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities to sticker, stuff, and tie our throws in lieu of recycling Mardi Gras beads, because you can see a world where they have built this um, day program around being able to recycle Mardi Gras beads, and then the city says, oops, plastic is bad, let's outlaw it. That's a problem for, you know, thousands of people that otherwise don't have jobs. So we try and create wage earning jobs for the people that are in our community that otherwise can't do some of the other things, you know? That's fantastic. I mean, I love just the focus on, you know, thinking of local economies in general and the way that that relates to how we can have a more sustainable environment, you know, more healthy environment, but a more sustainable carnival season. I love that you're bringing in all of these different nonprofit partners in addition to yourself. Uh, and it seems like a really fantastic model. Of course, our listenership is largely out of Houston, but as I was saying at the beginning, Mardi Gras runs from Calveston all the way out to Mississippi and Alabama. And so, I mean, I think this model of thinking about how we can localize Mardi Gras in certain ways and really make it responsive to those around us is so inspiring. So I just so grateful for for all the work that you guys are doing and how you're helping us to, to rethink this wonderful time of year to focus Thanks. on. 
Uh, yeah, so it's really a story of community involvement. You know, I mean, we could not be doing the recycling initiative without the six other nonprofits that have jumped in to help. You know, it started with the green drinks and we all met each other and started making friends. And, you know, if I could encourage listeners in Houston to do anything, it's to build a community of environmentalists, because when you all work together, you can achieve really great things. That's so great. Thank you so much for all your time and for the work you're doing and have a wonderful Mardi Gras. Hey, thank you. You too. And now we'll go over to our researcher, Sienna Yen, who has some different ways to get involved around Houston this week. Hey everyone, this is Sienna coming to you with some upcoming opportunities to get involved. Buffalo Bayou Partnership invites you to join their monthly volunteer workday on Saturday, February 17th from 8.30 to 11.30 a.m. at Buffalo Bayou Park. Buffalo Bayou Partnership is dedicated to creating and maintaining welcoming parks, trails, and unique spaces that connect Houstonians with the city's rich natural heritage. Their projects not only beautify the landscape, but also serve as portals to Houston's diverse history and neighborhoods. This is an opportunity for individuals and small groups, ages 9 and up, to come together and contribute to the beauty and health of Buffalo Bayou. By lending a hand, you'll be helping to care for native vegetation, pick up trash, and enhance the parks and trails along Houston's most significant natural waterway. Participation is easy. Simply register online by completing the volunteer waiver on Buffalo Bayou Partnership's website. For small groups, you can reserve your spots, and larger groups can even schedule another day during the month by reaching out to volunteer at buffalobayou.org. You'll be tackling a variety of tasks, from trash pickup to mulching and weed removal. Just remember to bring your own work gloves. They'll take care of the rest and provide all the necessary tools. For parking, head to City Lot H, and for check-in location details, contact volunteer at buffalobayou.org. Got any more questions? Feel free to reach out to Steve Parker via email at volunteer at buffalobayou.org or give him a call at 713-752-0314, extension 206. So come on out and be a part of something truly special with Buffalo Bayou Partnership. There's something for everyone here and your help will make a real difference. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we're talking about carbon capture and storage. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, Leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. A quick reminder that you can catch up on Gulf Streams anytime through our podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Finally, I'd like to remind listeners that KPFT is in our February fund drive. To support more programming, please call 713-526-KPFT, press 1 for donations, and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going. This work is only possible with your generous support, so please call into 713-526-KPFT, extension 1, and make a pledge to keep us on the air and bringing you the most important stories about the environment and our changing climate here in Houston. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies, with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio, produced by Weston Twardowski.
co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.